regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Welcome to the fourth episode of Datacast. Today, I'm on the line with uh, Sora Patnaga. He is the ex-principal data scientist at Rand the Runway. Uh, he created the big data analytics and recommendation platforms at Rand the Runway and scaled it to uh, more than 30 million users. And if you don't know, the company is now valued at $800 million. He was also involved in many personal personalization incentives, as well as back-end fulfillment algorithms that power the business. He also pioneered AI products at Rand Runway, like image search and recommendations. Uh, prior to his role at Rand Runway, uh, Saurabh was a founding member of the quantitative analyst team at Barnes & Nobles and Habit Grow. His responsibility at Barnes & Nobles were customer segmentation and propensity to buy models. Since 2000, he has consulted in data space for many Fortune 500 firms. And uh, most recently, he founded Variable, a retail AI startup. Um, so uh, welcome to the show, Sora. Uh, thank you, James. Awesome. So let's go back to your early days in college. Um, I saw in your profile that you studied computer science and math during your undergrad at uh, Darling College. So can you share with the audience uh, how you uh, initially got interested in these subjects and uh, decided to uh, study them? Uh, sure. So I studied uh, computer science. I started with computer science in at Dowling in '97, and I I had a full scholarship. So I could I could take whatever courses I wanted, and I, I got into a lot of math as well. Um, and at some point, I also got into philosophy. I thought I would have three degrees, but I ended up having two. Um, yeah. So I. Uh, it was just, uh, I think I, I didn't force myself to take courses that I just had to take. I took whatever courses I wanted, but it just so happened that I ended up doing a lot more uh, math and computer science courses than I, uh, I just wished I did something. What were some of the uh, most interesting courses you took in college? Uh, so such a long time ago, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, definitely artificial intelligence was interesting. Uh, uh, Operating systems was interesting, but I think like the, the one that I thought was the most challenging was number theory. Mm-hmm. It was one, uh, I ended up getting an A minus then, which was uh, <laughs> uh, apparently the highest score at the time, but it was, it was, it was one I was going to fail in at the time. Um, and number theory was one of those things I, I thought I would be good at, but I was not at all. And I had to drop everything and study that for for a few months to, to get to get back at it. But it was, it was one of those things that... I don't use any of it anymore, but it just uh, was one of those things that was just so tangential to whatever I knew at the time that it, it taught me that you could pretty much pick up anything you you, you want, but sometimes it will just, some, some things just fall into place and other things you really have to make an effort and think in a very different way. 
And so uh, your, your first job after college is as a software architect with uh, CA Technologies and you, um, you end up staying there for close to seven years, right? And so let's, let's go over your experience there. So I started there as a, a software engineer for, uh, for uh, Ingress. And Ingress was the first relational database and the non-open source version was uh, run by computers and CAs. I think it's spun off since then. Uh, so I got exposure to database systems as a software engineer early in, the, early in my, um, I guess, 20s. And then I started consulting from that point on, and I uh, went to uh, other other positions. But uh, but I ended up doing a mix of software engineering uh, as a software engineer, and also consulting, and then a bit of math and, and, and different things as I went along, depending on the job I got. But my interest was more or less um, around like quant fields and 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 math fields, and I could never make up my mind. And I think uh, it's one of those funny things. Like back then. Uh, there was no data science as a as a topic, um, but I ended up doing both uh, data science and computer science at uh, math and computer science at different companies depending on what I was doing. Um, so so yeah, that's sort of the long history version of it. Yeah. If you can, I know that's such a long time ago, but uh, can you and Carter and recall any uh, you know uh, exciting projects that you have been working on? Uh, during the time at CA that you believe has been uh, extremely beneficial for your career um, so far? Um, so I, like I said, the first first thing I was doing there was uh, a software programmer for, for, for Ingress database systems. But later on, uh, while I was still at CA, I was a software architect and my mm-hmm. job was to uh, integrate whatever company CA ended up buying. And uh, with that meant uh, different softwares were, are written in different programming languages. And even if Ingress was written in C and uh, uh, other software were written in, in, in Java and Tickle in, in very obscure languages. And, I, and one thing that I ended up doing was figuring out how to, how to make two different pieces of software talk. And it was like still back in the day. This is like when we were we still had desktop applications. This was before we had like really truly SaaS oriented applications. Um, so I ended up doing a lot of different programming languages uh, to a level of semi usefulness. And it's one of those things that I thought at the time was very annoying and very upsetting because every uh, uh, all these enterprise softwares were just written in absolutely different paradigms. Uh, but it ended up being something useful, especially in the game, because it's, it just becomes uh, once you once you do a lot of languages, it, it it becomes second nature to see what's common amongst them and and what's useful about them, what's not useful about them. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was one of those things that, even though at the time I thought it was incredibly annoying, it it, it, it ended up helping out with uh, uh, with a lot of research later on, especially with uh, deep learning early in the days when I was using Torch and um, it was in. Uh, they were they supported a language called Lua, but I had done some Lua in the past, and so it was it was actually not hard. So 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 all these things actually come back together at some later point, but they don't make sense at the in the moment. Yeah, and so up up to uh, your time at CA, uh, you um, you were self-employed as a data architect, um, I think specializing in Oracle database, right? And so what is what is the mo- motivation behind your your decision to uh, to go this route? So, while I was a CA, I ended up uh, supporting some consultants 
And uh, I just got enamored with that. I thought it was very interesting to go on the on the customer's side, understand their problem, and and uh, create a solution for that for those customers. And I wanted to do that in the long term. And at the time, the biggest database was not Ingress; it was Oracle. And and really, it's, they're, they're very similar, like eighty percent the same. So uh, I ended up uh, being an Oracle database. Uh, uh, database expert and going to customer sites for that. Uh, but it was, uh, what I liked about it, that was you would go on people's sites and they would say, oh, my performance is slow for this, this, this application. You do your job, you figure out the thing and, and you're done. And it was very nice and clean and uh, satisfying. Th that was my early foray into consulting. I'm just kind of curious, um, how is sort of the, the database uh, technologies different back then compared to, to like nowadays, you know? So one huge difference is of course that now, uh, I think almost everything new has, should be really in the cloud and, and a cloud strategy has to be a central part of databases and, and data strategy. Uh, back then, uh, it was all on-premise and you spent a lot of time work, worrying about uh, failover and things like that. Naturally, this is, I, I don't, this maybe much too much detail, but uh, when 9-11 happened, I was at uh, at Computers of Sears at the time, and we ended up supporting customers who lost uh, data centers, and of course, it was it was not, not a very pleasant time. Mm -hmm. um, so we were trying to work out how to restore things from, from failed or very few backups. And so, so one of the big things that happened as uh, for the next few years was people figuring out a good disaster recovery uh, strategy um so that's like that, that's one big thing the second big thing that i think that big trend around that was uh, uh applications that were running on the database so for example you've got you had a lot of uh, oracle apps uh, a lot of salesforce uh, sorry sap apps and all that and i think uh, that also has changed over time where now people are more tight using the SaaS model mm -hmm. where they're they actually need fewer dbas fewer data architects and all of those people because uh, really, like Amazon or, or Microsoft is really managing your data for you. Uh, so that's like one major, those are like two major differences, I think. Um, there are a lot of other differences, like uh, with size of data and relation and unstructured data, but I think those are sort of like less uh, less obvious traits. Um, so in the next phase of your career, you know, after doing consulting, you uh, you started a job as a senior data scientist at uh, Bans & Nobles. So um, how was your experience there? Um, so actually, even while I was working as a uh, as a database uh, a data architect or whatever, when I would go to customer sites, I would um, try to relieve some sort of like uh, outlier detection or something like that at customer sites. And one of those, and, and so I had done a project at Ransomware for two years before. So so we we implemented the uh, ETL pipeline, and I I asked them like, okay, now you have all the data flowing in, but how do you know? When the data is wrong, and uh, at the, and of course the, the the main answer is oh we write tests we have like multiple databases and, and you kind of like the pretty standard ways of doing that, but I ended up writing uh, an outlier detection program for them that was basically sort of my for an intelligent system roughly, um, and and it was uh, something that was raising an alarm when when the data was two standard deviations out. And so that was actually one of the reasons why I got called back to say, hey, actually, we like that intelligent thing you build. We would like to build more of that. And and, and can you come 
back and help us build this team out. And, and so that was a very different experience where uh, they actually had buy-in. They they had a um, executive who was a, a ex-POM, and he had uh, buy-in to build out a team for uh, for Cognitive Analytics. And uh, they had to figure out the market for Nook, which was I don't know if you remember Nook is the uh, the Kindle competition. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and to do that, they obviously needed a lot of data insights, and, and that was not obvious at the time. So they all they they formed a team to to uh, to understand how they should uh, market Nook, who sh- who should they sell it to, uh, and of course, the big asset was that they had a big database of of uh, uh, users who were already buying uh, Barnes Noble uh, books from website and stores and everywhere else. Yeah, uh, so so you were leading the team of data scientists at Barnes and Noble, right? You know, what are what was some of the challenge being being like a, a manager in, instead of being an, an an IC? You know. Yeah, I think I think that was a somewhere in the middle role. I had a manager and an IC sort of role, uh, more of a technical lead role. Okay. And I think the uh, the challenge was of, was uh, hiring data scientists. Uh, I think it's still a challenge now. But uh, uh, for example, one of the main people who we uh, who we got um, had done had a lot of experience in support vector machines and had worked for an oil company. So again, like people people uh, who are exceptionally good in math, but they were uh, doing something completely different. And you had to see, you have to connect the dots that okay, they could use that knowledge for this. And and they didn't they didn't have experience in databases. They didn't have experience in certain things, but they had experience in other things. And you could you had to like basically think about how to put the team together where everyone together is is able to contribute into a to a fruitful exercise yeah and just kind of related to that how how important do you do you think the the sort of uh, domain expertise that a, a data scientist need to have i mean i mean obviously if they're good at the the, the technical stuff it's okay but like say you will work for 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 like yeah, you know, around the runway or Barnes and Noble, you, you kind of you think it's important for that person to have that sort of knowledge or expertise in like retail um, industry. No, I I don't think domain expertise is a prerequisite. Mm-hmm. It is definitely important to have to develop it as you go along, but that comes with data. Mm-hmm. In fact, in some cases, domain expertise might hurt because that creates biases, and you don't really want biases. You want to learn everything you want to learn from data. You will hit a wall, and and at some point you will have to go and find a domain expert to fill in those details. But you want to learn as much as you can from it, and and check your biases at the door if you can. This is one of those things. I th- I think it's good and bad. Like if you if you have domain expertise, that's also good because you have already uh, you already know what to watch out for, what what doesn't work, and 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 what sort of uh, moves the needle, what doesn't. Whereas, uh, whereas if you don't have domain expertise, you you have to know that you don't have domain expertise and you have to uh, just be curious and acknowledge that you are willing to ask um, uh, people when you run into into a problem. So I, I, I think the main main skills, I think, uh, forgetting everything else, like are uh, even forgetting technical skills for data scientists have to be curiosity mm-hmm. and being able to, being not afraid to ask, you know, stupid questions, you know, which are pretty obvious to some to domain experts sometimes. Okay, so after working at Barnes and Noble for two years, you uh, decided to accept a role as a senior data scientist at Grand the Runway, which uh, you know I believe back in 2012 was a quite a small startup. 
And so why did you make this career decision? Uh, so I thought uh, recommending clothes was an interesting challenge. At that time, if you remember, Netflix was 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 the state of the art for recommendations, still is. And so other movies were done and, and Barnes & Noble had done a very good job of books and of course so at Amazon. So other movies and books were done and um, the next frontiers I thought were music and clothes. And for music, that was Spotify and actually, uh, I know Eric was leading the team there. And, uh, and um, uh, I took over uh, Run the Runway because I, I, I know that it, at the time, there wasn't a system that truly understood customers' taste with uh, for for clothes, and I think um, you know all of these things sound obvious in hindsight. Like now, if you ask someone, like, they'll say, "Of course, recommendation systems understand clothes," but uh, it wasn't unknown at the time. It, so it wasn't unknown, and I could see there would be a big impact for doing this. And it was obviously um, uh, the, the other thing was like. This company, Renderanway, uh, has a very complex structure because they don't just do demand; they also have a warehouse. They actually are the biggest dry cleaners in the world, mm-hmm. so they have a very complex structure. And along with that, come, come comes a lot of opportunity to think about very tough problems that have not been thought of before. Yeah, well, I think just kind of um, going over that part when I was when I was just taking a look at um, Renderanway's website, you know, uh, describe itself as a fashion company with a technology soul. So would you say that uh, this is like a correct characterization of the company? And, and if so, can you uh, elaborate more on that? I think it's a data company which happens to be in, in fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the fashion is incidental. And honestly, it could be, it could well have been selling cameras or anything else. Uh, but but the, the main thing for Render Runway is, so, so let me give you an idea of like why is, why is this so complex? So, one part of it is to figure out whether you should send out a dress, but in order to send out the dress, you have to figure out whether the, the dress is from the previous customers going to come back in. Is it going to be delayed? Is it going to be uh, in a shape where we can dry clean it and send it out again? And all of those are prediction problems. And that is just a guess you need to take in order to know whether or not you should take the next reservation. Because you need to take the next reservation now for three three weeks out. So, so that is a very hard prediction problem. Then, I mean, that, that's just one on the demand side. On supply side, there are the other problems too. So I think, well, what I mean by that, I think everything about Render and Way is, is a data problem. There really isn't a way that Render and Way could work without having a strong data team. You wrote a very uh, detailed blog post on, 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 uh, on the strategy that you use to scale machine learning at Render Runway. I'll link that in the show notes, but uh, I also want to go over a couple of points, you know, so that you can reinforce this with, with our audience. So you uh, you mentioned in, in that post that uh, the, the complexity of communication increased exponentially uh, proportional to the number of teams involved. So, you know, as a data scientist, you should always try for simplicity, right? And so what, what do you think would be like, the say, when you are, you are building a machine learning system, how, how should the team be structured? And, you know, what do you think would be the ideal number of team members in that? So, uh, as you know, there's a lot I can talk about, say about that. Uh, so, just a short short view of that, I think, is that uh, the team, ideally, if you, you want to structure the team so that one person's working on one pro- project, but that person knows, has as much support as they need from other people. So, for example, what that means is, like, you've got someone who's 
um, very good at modeling, but perhaps they're not very good at engineering. So you need the, the engineering person to help them along to to be to, to build a platform where they can they can do both. Ideally, you want someone who can do both, but it's not always easy to find someone like that. So that that is just the internal team, but but how you interact with other teams is very important. So so one thing with data science is like as you know, a lot of almost everybody wants to get into data science, and, they, and I think to be honest, I think it's an essential skill for for every software developer at this point. When people want to want to help you. You have to always ask yourself: Is this a short-term help, which is something that some people just want to like, um, you know, get their feet fed? But or is, or, or is this something that will be supported in the long term, or is it built to last? And I think a lot of times when you ask that question, you will know the answer whether you want to involve the other person or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, my my shorthand for this is like: It's better to keep the the keep fewer interactions uh, and keep momentum, keep the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. Rather than get too many people involved and then getting pulled in too many directions and not having done anything at all. You also said that um, the data scient- the data scientist needs to treat user experience and and product as an extension of what he can optimize, and the goal should be to validate the metrics and make feedback loops that give him more data. So, how can a data scientist can uh, incorporate like design product into his workflow? So I think I think that's a that's sort of the main thing. You you have to realize that you're not just in charge of the algorithm. You're in charge of of getting uh, users to come back to the website, and that's really your main goal. The algorithm is a tool, but ultimately your main goal is not to just have a better you know uh, RMSC on something. Your your goal is to get more people in the door to have a bigger lift. So what do you need to do in order to do that? And when you ask the question that way. It changes what the levers you can move. You should always optimize for getting a full feedback loop out the door, which means that uh, you, you want to get the data in, training algorithm, deploy algorithm, uh, get it out, and so that you get customer feedback and you get a whole feedback loop because uh, that is your MVP. Your 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 best algorithm is not your MVP, or your MVP is getting a data loop. And if you have a data loop. You will get a lot more data, and that will help you build a better algorithm, do do things you couldn't do before. Uh, but none of that will be possible unless you have a full data loop. So, so what I mean by that is, like, to get a full data loop, you need to optimize. The, you know, if there isn't, if some, if you don't have some data, that's okay. Uh, uh, you know, work with the product team to have something on the UX so that you can get that data. If you don't have, for example, uh, I don't know if. Uh, Why people return something? Uh, I have a hypothesis, but I don't know that. Well, why don't I work with the product team to put a questionnaire there, so I can use that data and, and, and build something up. So I can still put a prediction out and and um, ask the users to correct me, and uh, as they correct me, that will give me more data. So so it's a, all this thing in terms of the entire loop, the entire data pipe, uh, data structure, not just like okay, um, here's a you know. Here's a problem set where I just have to tune this one algorithm, and I can just tune that and make it better, and that will magically make everything work. It won't. Um, so, so, so you have to have the full data loop. That's one key aspect. The second thing is about metrics, and metrics is a whole different topic. But I think the main takeaway of that is no matter what model you choose and what metric you choose, it's going to be wrong. I don't know. You want to call it Heisenberg or a certain different principle or whatever. Uh, every metric is going to be wrong in the long term. But you have to optimize for something. So whatever you're optimizing for, 
that's fine, go ahead and do that. But all of this relate that to the top level KPI that you really need to watch out for. Um, so at the end of the day, your metric is not uh, AUC or RMS or any of those things. Your top level metric is uh, number of uh, uh, number of uh, uh, clicks that have gone up or something like that, or or, rev- or increase in revenue or decrease in cost or, or, or any of those things. Right. So you always have to map that to to your metrics. So for example, if I increase my AUC from 0.89 to 0.9, how much of a difference does it make to my to my click through rate? If it uh, um, if it makes a difference of you know you know ten percent, that's great. If it makes no difference, then clearly uh, a small enough difference of AUC doesn't really matter. You need to have a big enough difference to, to matter. And just just kind of re, re, restate that you know I think a lot of data scientists coming from academia, they they um, they focus a lot more on sort of the the, the accuracy metric and, and things like that. Things in they they used to in in academic research but when you go into the industry you kind of have to to grab yourself and focus on on on, on um, the business metrics right like how do you translate your results into something that actually help the product uh, get more get more users and help the company with things that you mentioned like number number user retention or revenue i think of that things of that nature yeah absolutely. yeah and uh, you also said that uh, once the data scientist is done understanding and analyzing what the problems are he needs to pitch them to the business stakeholders and treat it like a like a vc pitch so so what has been some of the you know the the best resources that help you personally in this area like how do you make better pitches um so this is a uh, yeah this is this is a this is an area where you can uh, you have to start and, and 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 it takes time to get better uh, so for example for myself uh, one of the earliest pitch, basically everything is a pitch, right? So obviously recommendation systems is, is uh, you can say, okay, uh, that means the grid needs to look like that. Fine. But what about uh, the emails? What should what should be the emails? So then that means you have to go and talk to the marketing person, ask, ask them and, and, and get them involved and, and have them um, work out something that they're willing to test and uh, then bring it back to your, to your exec team and say, hey, we want to do this. Do we have buy-in to do this for, for a few months? Um, so it's a couple of things to come into this. One is that uh, data projects usually don't have a return on the dime. Like it doesn't mean that today you deploy a model and tomorrow suddenly you'll have a 10% lift. That almost never happens. Um, and it's, it's again because you have to create that whole data loop and that takes time. Uh, so you're not just working on the model, you're working on the UX, the, the data engineering, the the, the back end engineering, the front end engineering, all of those people have to work together in order to create a whole data loop. Um, so, so you you need buy in from execs to wait to see this result, these results. Um, so, for example, uh, I think one example I talked about was uh, was getting fit on the roadmap. So, I have a very strong hypothesis of fit. I tried to explain it, then I, I realized that uh, it doesn't work, so then I had to create a demo, I created a, I wrote an internal white paper, I um, pitched it to the, the, the execs, I, I showed it in, in the team meetings, and then that got me uh, a team that could work on that for a quarter um, with, a, with a mandate. So that, that is sort of an example of how you go along doing that. Uh, and I, I think the main reason is that the, the, everybody has their own um, tools of thinking. So data scientist is going to have a different solution to the fit problem than than the product person. And 
because there is always there are always multiple solutions that are possible. You need to uh, show show them why your expensive solution that might take six months is a solution that is worth trying out. Mm-hmm. And what are you going to learn at the end of that? Are you going to learn something that that can be used later, or or is it just like a throwaway thing? So all those things are, are are things that you need to pitch and and uh, and get the the company into a learning mindset. The expectations that it's going to take a while. It's not something that just happens. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. So uh, so moving uh, a little bit away from data science, I uh, I listened to an episode on the NPR podcast called How How I Build This on uh, Run the Runways father father Jennifer Hyman. And was very impressed by her entrepreneurial journey. How did she build this company from scratch? You know, and I'm just wondering from your experience, how is she as a leader and as an entrepreneur? Um, so I've had a lot of different bosses over the years. I think she's one of the most impressive people I've ever met. Mm-hmm. Um, she's uh, one who has a very strong long-term vision and can explain it very well. I think uh, very people like that quality. They and she's also one who can get down to numbers and talk brass tacks about specific tactics so i think that, uh, that's a very good ability to be able to go between those two things uh the other thing i would say about jen is that she has very good ability to like delegate certain responsibilities to other to, to to people so she's able to say that okay let's do this but i'm going to be patient on this result and 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 i trust that that you guys have it and you, sh- you show me something in six months so that's also uh, she also knows how to manage Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a lot of, not all, most most execs do actually have that sense. Um, she has a, she has a more more of that, but but some some execs don't have that. They they actually they actually want to micromanage. They want to go in and 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 move things while in the mid, while uh, things are moving. So so I think Jen has got obviously a very good executor and, and of course a very good a very nice uh, vision of exactly where she wants things to go. You wrote a blog post called Human in AI. Human in AI loop, I think, and you shared the detail of building Deep Dress AI, which basically showed the Instagram photos on random runways product pages, and then helped the customer to find the fashion inspiration through these high quality photos. So, would you mind uh, elaborating on the inspiration behind this project, uh, as well as some of the challenges that you encounter? Yeah, sure. So uh, that came from. Um, so I had I had formed an impromptu AI group at RTR that would meet every Friday mm-hmm. and we would talk through what are the different applications of AI that we could use and it was a cross-functional group. We have people from design and product and everywhere. And one of the things that, uh, it was not my idea, somebody else said it, that we have photo reviews on Instagram, why don't we bring them into our product pages? And I go, went back and checked the hypothesis and it was a good hypothesis because we had, um, we are, already have a lot of uh, photo reviews. and products that have photo reviews get rendered a lot more. And so there's a very good correlation between having more reviews means that the product is going to be rendered. So it, it is definitely in our interest to get more photo reviews on the product page. And Instagram definitely has those photo reviews. The problem is that every Instagram post would have like hashtag RTR or Runway, but they wouldn't hashtag the exact dress set, of course. They don't want to hashtag like BM110. So, uh, so how do you identify which dress goes on which which uh, uh, product page? So it clearly was an AI problem. Which I, uh, so I, so I worked on on that where we, where I would um, uh, take these random dresses from uh, from Instagram and then classify them into one of uh, ten thousand styles. Um, 
the problem was that we had an accuracy rate that was like around hovering around 80% something. So we still had 20% that was not right. And uh, there are many reasons for that. One of those is that people tag things like dogs and or just random things or like a boat mm-hmm. that uh, don't even show the dress. Um, but but, the, but really, the AI wasn't, isn't perfect. So uh, again, uh, the, the, you could work on, at this point, I could decide between two things. I could try to make the algorithm better or I could factor in the fact that the algorithm is not perfect, but how do I make it, uh, make the results perfect, even with the imperfect algorithm? And when you again think through the whole data pipeline, the whole data pipeline is not about making the better algorithm. The whole data pipeline is like, well, I, I should either figure out what those 20% so I don't show them, or I use humans to verify that this is, this is uh, uh, fix them or, or, or get as much as out of it and actually help that use that data to make the AI better over long term. So that's exactly what I did. I ended up making a small um, sort of like Tinder-like uh, truth, truth, truth user or something like that for internal users where they could, uh, people during their lunch break would go and okay. uh, see the fo- Instagram photos, see what you predicted it to be and whether you were right or wrong. That's it, binary choice roughly. And they would say, you're right, you're wrong. Oh, actually there was a third choice, which is like, it's not even a dress. Uh, so, so they would just do that very quickly, and and uh, and uh, people were, some people went through like you know hundreds of these photos. Yeah. Uh, so it was actually very successful because that's how we closed the gap and went from eighty percent to like ninety five right. because we were able to to go and 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 quickly fix the problems of AI with humans, and and also it gives us training data that will help us make the AI better over time. So, having worked at both Bands and Overs and ran the runway, so in your in your opinion, um, what are some of the unique challenges of applying data science in the retail space? I I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer that because I have only really worked in retail, mm-hmm. uh, so I can't contrast it with something else. Like for example, banks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can tell you a few things. One is like, uh, of course, retail is an old industry, so you have a lot of biases built in. And, and uh, you have a lot of tribal knowledge. I'm trying to find a good example of that. Uh, so for, some, uh, for example, for, uh, uh, for Barcenovo, um, I think one, one thing that happened was looking at, uh, at the time Facebook opened up their graph and you could see what authors uh, people had um, on their profile. Uh, and actually uh, in a similar way, in a better way. So, so I think to summarize in a different way, the people who work at the company are not the, the ideal customer, which is a mistake everybody does. So people who work around their own way are people who are really into fashion, who understand fashion, whereas an average customer for around their own way mm-hmm. does not understand fashion. She's very busy and she doesn't have a lot of time and she just wants to uh, to solve this problem, just give her a high quality dress that she doesn't want to think too much about. Um, so a lot of times when, uh, for example, a simple thing, how many how many uh, designers do you know? Someone at Render and we could list thirty designers at the top of their head. Somewhere, uh, whereas one of our, uh, if you ask the same question of our customers, they could probably list maybe three or five. And so that 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 change, that biases the decisions. That biases what you ask. You can't use for you. That biases the questionnaires. That biases every everything how you how you approach these problems. So I think um, the unique challenge of retail is really the unique challenge anywhere else, which is to figure out how do you how do you separate your own bias from what the data is telling you? 
Well, obviously, going off of that, now you are the founder and CEO of Wearable AI, a startup that targets on fashion. So, can you just like give a very brief glimpse on um, you know what are your plans for Wearable? Well, I know you are you are pitching a few investors at the moment, right? Yeah. So, investors think clients at the moment. So, yeah, things are um, things are moving, but it's uh, uh, it's still uh, unfortunately I'm still in like the sort of the stealth stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What I can tell you is that it's a uh, it's a decision support system that helps companies price better and also uh, buy better for the next uh, season. So, so those two big problems that we're solving for retail. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, unfortunately, I can't say much more than that at the moment. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Yeah. So, what would be your advice, you know, for data scientists who want to pursue like an entrepreneurial route and start their own ventures? I think talk to the clients. I think that's number one. Um, see if the problem that you you think is solved is worth solving is something they would pay for. Uh, I think it actually is a very good place to start for entrepreneurs, uh, simply because. Um, so this is this is one other lesson I learned over time that when you're in a big company, I ended up like for example convincing a lot of people to get something on the roadmap, and that's that's just, that takes time to get, get that to develop that skill. Whereas when you're an entrepreneur. If you, you have to convince one or two people, and if that works, great, things go ale- go ahead. Otherwise, you can just move on to the next company. You don't have that uh, option of, of uh, doing that when you're working within a big, big company. So actually, I think it's better for for something as, as cutting edge as, as data science to, to be outside of the, of, the, of the company and actually be an entrepreneur, if you have the stomach for it. You wrote an interesting blog post on um, basically using... Uh, Generative adversarial networks to uh, create photo of dresses and um, yeah, generate dresses for and use them as training data for your model. So I mean, the post is already very informative, and I, I put that on the show note. But um, maybe can you just share a brief, you know, overview uh, on maybe the practical applications of uh, GANs models, you know, uh, for in in the future? Because like I read a lot of like talks nowadays talking like you know you know GANs gonna be like one of those models that's going to really revolutionize the whole deep learning um, discipline, you know? Yeah, so I think GANs are super interesting because, you know, they, they turn an unsupervised problem into a supervised problem, which is, um, which is where basically where we have all the um, heavy machinery. So, so GANs are extremely, extremely, extremely important things to learn. Um, unfortunately, they're a little bit hard to train, but uh, I think... Uh, uh, things have come along come a long way since since that article was like I think two years ago. Uh, I think it was a while ago. Um, for fashion, I think there are two kinds of things that can be useful for GAN, and one is the obvious ones that everybody thinks through. Um, so the obvious ones are kind of what I had in the post as well, like generating dresses and things like that. Uh, again, it's one of those places where I think you the while GANs have gotten really good and you can generate a dress pretty much synthetically, um, they're not at the level that they will, you will put that as a product photo. But that's okay. You can probably still use a GAN and a, design to, and a designer to clean up the work um, to do that. So it's actually human AI loop, the same principle from four, might be a good idea to use there. But I think the main, the main goal of using GANs is actually... Um, to, to figure out other um, uh, other unsupervised explore spaces. For example, uh, it doesn't have to be limited to images, right? So it can be also used for um, uh, 
for other um, uh, spaces like uh, price or, or or some other optimization problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so and, and that's that's the non-obvious thing that I think not enough papers are written about that, but that actually is a very good place to go and and think through about what can applications. Yeah, I mean the the possibility is quite endless, right? Like you can you can really like augment your data and then you you uh, you you want more data to work with in general. So basically for any problems that that gonna raise the bar a lot you know with more data your models become better and there's a lot of advance you advancement you can you can do with uh, with your work yeah um, i think images are the most easiest to see mm-hmm. visually but if you you apply to other things you can you can get pretty far fantastic so uh now it's towards the the end of our chat and i want to uh come up with our closing segment so just a couple of quick questions um, for you with um, specific answers for the audience to take away. Um, the first one is, uh, what are some of the companies which are doing exceptional data science work that you admire? Um, I, th- I think uh, Salesforce is doing amazing mm. NLP stuff in general, but I think everybody knows that. Uh, I think the um, other company that I really like, uh, there's a company called, uh, based in New York that uses data to figure out, uh, to help the police figure out um, uh, how the minorities are are uh, are feeling, um, so that so that they can use that to uh, to work better with those communities in in those certain areas. And I think that's that's a really cool application. Yeah. So I think the the companies that are doing something interesting are not the ones that are selling uh, are not the ones that are selling the black box AI, but the ones that are that are using it for a human problem. Uh, what What is one book that you could recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical method? I would say The Signal and the Noise. It's oh, some... yeah. Nice yeah. That, that's, a good, that's a good book. Yeah, I actually just ordered it like last week, so it's on, on my shelf. It's on my uh, to-read list at the moment. Yeah, that, that's good. And of course, like uh, for deep learning, uh, you know, Goodfellow's book is amazing as well. So. Yeah, that actually uh, a, a textbook that I have to read from my class at the moment. So, yeah. Um, and then the last question about interview. Imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Focus on the problem, create end-to-end solution, and keep it simple. Fantastic, yeah. So, well, uh, thanks a lot, Saurav. Uh, thanks for being on the show today and uh, for sharing some of your experience, you know, um, uh, building data science team at the Runway at Manson Nobles at your startup and sharing your very um, interesting, you know, business and technical insights on on how um, data scientists can, can t- take away. And I'm sure you, a lot of people gonna benefit a lot from this. Okay, thank you, thank you, James. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.